please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10, the Gospel of John chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 22 through 42. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Please give it your careful attention. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. One of the most infuriating fads of modern scholars is the rewriting of history. Now, it's always been true that historians tend to write history in light of the values and philosophies of their own day and age. And so it's not uncommon that you get a twisted or distorted view of history through the lens of of what the thinking and and the mindset is of the historians of the day. But as you look back over the last 50 years, it's hard not to come to the conclusion as a Christian that there is a devilish energy and mindset and agenda behind the tidal wave of revisionist history when it comes to Jesus Christ, the early church, the Bible. 
I'm thinking, and this is not, I would not in any stretch of the imagination put this guy in a category of a historian, but a, guy, a popular writer who uh, reflects the popular ideas of historians these day about the days about Christ and the early church is a man named Dan Brown, who I'm sure you've heard the name if you haven't come across his book, very popular book a number of years ago called The Da Vinci Code. But in that book, he basically reflects this modern deconstructionist view towards uh, the, the early beliefs of the early Christian church about Jesus Christ. And the whole basic storyline of the book is about uh, a, two people that are pursuing the Holy Grail, trying to find the Holy Grail, and they have a wise teacher who guides them, gives them hints and insights in their search. And this teacher's name is Tebing. And I just want to give you a reflect this through just one short dialogue from the book between Tebing, the teacher, and Sophie, one of the two main characters. And they're talking about the church council called the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 AD. And this is what Tebing says about the Council of Nicaea. He says, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. Sophie asked him, not the Son of God? Right, Tebing said. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Sophie says, hold on, you're saying that Jesus' divinity was a result of a vote? Tebing added, a relatively close vote at that. That is an outright, bold-faced lie. There is no truth to that whatsoever. The Council of Nicaea met 300 years after the time of Christ, and their goal was to put together a creedal statement that summarized what the true church had believed for the first three centuries of its existence after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they came up with this great document that summarized all that the apostles had taught and all that the church, the true church, had always believed about Jesus Christ. And then they didn't vote on whether Christ was divine or not. They had a, basically at the end of putting together that document, they had, there were 300 bishops and leaders and theologians and, and scholars of the church there. 298 of the 300 signed the document. That's what happened at the Council of Nicaea. It was an affirmation of what the church had always believed about the divinity of Christ, that he was the eternal son of God. If I need, and it's a shame you need to do it, but to go back to original sources to give the real history of the early church, let me take you back to the oldest surviving sermon that we possessed from the Christian church. The earliest scrap of a sermon we have begins with these words. Brethren, we ought so to think of Jesus Christ as of God, as the judge of the living and the dead. And we ought not to belittle our salvation, for when we belittle him, we expect also and receive little. Or go back to one of the earliest church fathers, Ignatius, a leader in the church who lived at the same time as the apostles. And he, in his letters and his writings, we have phrases like this. Christ, who was from eternity with the Father. Jesus Christ, our God. Or Jesus, who is both God and man. 
or take you back to the first account of the first Christian martyr where we have a written historical account of the first Christian who died for his faith. And this is, this is the quote that is attributed to that martyr. It will be impossible for us to forsake Christ or to worship any other. For him being the son of God we adore, but the martyrs we cherish. Or if you want a secular source, there's a Roman officer who's an unbeliever, who's writing about the early church in the very first years of the church, and this is what he writes, that these Christians gather before sunrise and sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. That's the historical record. But what's really sad is that modern scholars totally disregard the historical record of the life of ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is given to us by the eyewitnesses of those events, the apostles, men who died defending what they had written as eyewitnesses about the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ and the claims of Christ. And that's what we've been studying here in the Gospel of John. And matter of fact, we've quoted it a number of times as we've been working through the Gospel of John, but John tells us that the whole reason he's writing this Gospel is found in chapter 20. And let me quote it exactly. He says, I have written, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's an eyewitness report and the purpose for his writing. As we come here to the end of chapter 10, we're picking up, it looks like we've got one account from the beginning of chapter 10 to the end, but you'll notice there in verse 22 that we're actually, there's a gap in time between verse 21 and 22, about two to three months after Jesus, remember we had talked about last week, he healed the man who was born blind, and then there was this confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leadership who were hostile to him. And that's where we get that great teaching about Jesus being the good shepherd. Well, two or three months later, there's another feast in Jerusalem. And so Jesus returns to Jerusalem. And you can see that the leadership there, the Jewish leadership, is still very angry at him and out to get him. It says in verse 24 that this hostile group of Jewish leaders gather around him. And in the original language, the word there literally is to encircle him. And it reminds me of how back early in the chapter he had called some of them wolves who attacked the flock. And so you get the idea of a a pack of wolves circling Jesus, demanding answers from him. And they lay before him this challenge. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long are you going to keep us hanging, Jesus? People are saying you're the Messiah. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. You can hear the implied accusation in that, that Jesus was being deceptive, that Jesus was being evasive about whether he was really the Messiah or not. They're saying, tell us plainly, yes or no, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Now realize the tone behind the question. They're not asking so that they might believe, they're asking so that they might accuse him. But it is true, isn't it? that up until this point in his ministry, that publicly he had not declared himself to be the Messiah. 
Those words had not come out of his mouth. He had not said, I am the long-awaited Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He had not said those exact words. That's not because he was being evasive, but it's because the people that he was talking to had a language problem. The word Messiah or Christ, which means Messiah, it had a different connotation in first century Judaism than it did when the Old Testament prophets wrote about the Messiah. If Jesus answered the question, are you the Messiah, with a simple yes or no, no matter what he said, he was going to mislead people, not because of his intent, but because the word was problematic. If he said the word Messiah in his own context, in that historical context, people would have had visions of a great military leader who would become king and who would ride with a great army into Jerusalem and drive out the Romans and establish the throne in Jerusalem for the kingdom of God and bring the kingdom of God to earth and drive the Romans and all other uh, pagans and unbelievers into submission. That was their idea of the Messiah. And so you can understand why he couldn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah, without unintentionally misleading people. It's kind of like, you know, I'm trying to think of an example in our own life where we have to be careful how we use labels for ourselves. If you're Presbyterian or Baptist, you know, and you're out on the street and somebody comes along and they say, what kind of a church do you go to? Do you ever feel that kind of discomfort? It's like, I'm not sure how to answer this. I don't necessarily want to say I'm Presbyterian or I'm Baptist or I'm Methodist. I don't want to use the label because the label means something different to different people. If your experience, if I say I'm Presbyterian and your only experience with Presbyterians is with liberal Presbyterians who deny the scriptures, who deny the essentials of the gospel, then I don't want to say to you I'm a Presbyterian for fear that you're going to misunderstand who I am and what kind of a church I'm a part of. And so usually when I get that question, I say, well, what do you understand a Presbyterian to be? (laughs) Let's define the term and then make sure that I'm applying it accurately. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here up to this point in his ministry. He has to slowly, and that's what he's been doing, slowly, carefully redefine the expectations of the people about what the Messiah would come to do. Even his own disciples whom he had spent all this time with, even his own disciples didn't understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah. That he had to come and defeat our biggest enemies first. He had to defeat sin and Satan and death itself. We had to be delivered from those enemies before we could enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God. And that's why he came the first time. And so Jesus is, they're trying to paint him in a corner. Yes or no, Jesus, are you the Messiah? And again, it's amazing the wisdom he shows in answering. He begins by reminding them of his public statements. He says, I told you and you do not believe. Well, how had he told them? If he hadn't said, I am the Messiah, then how had he told them? Well, first of all, Jesus made claims that only God could make. You see what you're going to see here is he's actually saying, I am the Messiah, but I'm much more than the Messiah. And so he basically said, I made claims that only God could make. I told you who I am. Well, even if we only confine ourselves to the Gospel of John, I mean, we could draw upon a lot of information, be here a long time, talking about claims that he made in the other Gospels, but let's just contain ourselves to the Gospel of John. 
Go back to really the beginning of his public ministry where he's making public statements about who he is. Back in chapter 5, listen to the things he says. He says, whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Even at the end of chapter 5, he makes the audacious statement that Moses, when he wrote the first five books of the Bible, was actually writing about Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, he makes this public statement. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Chapter 7, he makes this public statement. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He goes on to say, if you knew me, you would know my father also. He also says, I am from above. I am not from this world, of this world. And then he makes that amazing statement at the end of chapter 8, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Even earlier in chapter 10, he says, I am the door for the flock of God's people. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. You see, they're so caught up in this title of Messiah that they're missing the much bigger message of what, who Jesus was claiming to be. The eternal son sent by the father into the world to do the work of Messiah. You know, they're listening, these Jewish leaders are listening carefully to catch Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah or I'm God, so that they could arrest him and put him to death. But it wasn't Jesus' time yet. He wasn't going to hand himself over yet. He hadn't been at all unclear about who he claimed to be, but they just didn't believe. He says, not only did I tell you who I am, I showed you who I am. Jesus did works that only God could do. He says in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Again, I'm just going to confine myself to John's gospel. And John, as we've said before, he only records seven out of the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of miracles that Jesus did. John only records seven of them. And only only a few of those were public miracles that everyone could see. And so just confining ourselves to what we've seen already up until chapter 10, Jesus publicly healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He healed him and immediately he stood up and walked. He also fed 5,000 men plus women plus children with only five loaves of bread and two fish. He had totally, immediately restored the eyesight to a man who had been born blind. These are all public miracles. And the Jewish leaders had investigated those miracles. We saw an account of that in one of those investigations in chapter 9. And they couldn't deny it. He had done these things. And we'll see when we get into chapter 11 in a couple of weeks. He's going to speak to a man who had been dead for four days. And that man's going to walk out of the tomb. And still, 
they wouldn't believe. Jesus saying, if you don't believe what I'm saying about who I am, pay attention to what I'm doing. My works bear witness that I have been sent by the Father. Now, what he's saying there is not that necessarily supernatural power proved that he was sent from the Father, because as we know from other scriptures, there can be demonic supernatural power. But it's not just that he had power, it's how he used that power. The works that he did represented the coming of the kingdom of God. They represented the kind of work that God promised he would do when he came to deliver his people and to establish the kingdom on earth. Back in Isaiah 61, he talks about the coming of the kingdom. Jesus preached, this was the text that Jesus preached in his first sermon when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth. And this is the passage he read. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is what the coming of the kingdom of God would look like, that the blind would see, the the, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk, the dead would be raised to life. These are the works of the kingdom. These are the works of the Father. This is grace to a fallen and broken mankind. If you can't hear my words, he's saying, look at what I have done. I have not been unclear. But he was speaking to deaf ears, as he says in verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, the problem wasn't that Jesus was being evasive or unclear about who he was. It's that these Jewish leaders had a heart problem. They had a stone-cold dead heart. Spiritually, they were dead, unable to hear his voice, unable to see and interpret rightly what he was doing. They were hardened in their sin. As Jesus said back in chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, even when it's right in front of them. Which brings us to the third evidence that Jesus gives. Jesus gives promises only God can give. We see his identity as the Son of God and Messiah and the fact that he gave promises only God can give. Verse 28, I give my sheep, those who hear my voice, those who come to me, those who follow me, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. They will never perish. That's a promise that only God can give. You see, he's talking about what he was talking about back in chapter 5. In verse 24, he says this, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He's talking about something that happened in the past for a believer. If you hear the voice of Christ, if you respond in faith, if you follow him, what that means is that if you have put your faith in Christ, then you have eternal life you were given eternal life in the past and you have already in the past crossed over from death to life 
It's a done deal. It's finished. It's accomplished. And now you possess eternal life. And eternal life, by definition, cannot be taken away. It's not conditional life. It's eternal life. That's because if you put your faith in Christ, it means that he has died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He died for them. He paid for them in completion on the cross. He says, it is finished. It is done. I have paid for the sins of my people. And so, therefore, God as judge can never punish you for any sin that you have committed, that you are committing, or that you ever will commit. God cannot punish you for that sin because Christ was punished for that sin. And Jesus said, even God said to Adam in the beginning, if you obey, you live. If you disobey, you die. Well, he's paid for our disobedience, and he's given us the gift of his righteousness through faith. And so in God's eyes, our holy judge, as he looks upon us, he sees obedient people because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so God is faithful to his word. If you're seen as obedient, then you will live for eternity. And understand that that's something that was given to you at the point of conversion that can't be taken away. You have eternal life. You, by no means, will perish, is what it says literally. Because of what Christ has done, not because of anything you have done or will do. He says that no one will snatch you out of my hand. That's where your confidence is. It's not in your hand, it's in his hand. No one will snatch you out of my hand. More than that, he says, if that's not enough, my father who has given them, the sheep, to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's called double security. Now, if you've ever been a parent of a toddler, maybe you are now. If you're, you know, you're in the middle of the city, just imagine, you're in the middle of the city, busy street, cars going by really fast, big trucks. You're standing on the corner, you need to get to the other side of the street. You look down at your little preschooler, your toddler, and what do you say to him? Hold my hand. But do you trust that child to hold your hand all the way across the other street, side of the street? Absolutely not. You grab that child's hand and you put it in a death grip. There's nothing that's going to make you let go of that child's hand until you get to the other side of the street because you can't trust him to hold on, but you can hold on to him. And that's what Jesus is saying. You have eternal life if you put your faith in me. If you're my sheep and you've heard my voice and you've come to me and you believe in me and you follow me, then I've got you in my hand. Do you know more than that? My father has you, in, has you in his hand too. You will by no means perish. And he ends with another clear claim. He says, I and the father are one. Now sometimes we rip that out of context and use it to say that Jesus is saying, I and the father are one essence. That is true that he and the father are one essence. But that's not what he's saying here. In the context, what he's talking about is that we are one in our mission. We are one in our purpose. I and the Father are one in our purpose. And what's their purpose? To bring the flock into the kingdom for all eternity. We are secure in the Father and in the Son. Now, it's interesting that even though he was talking about his mission and purpose... You have to understand that the reason that he and the Father are one in their mission and purpose is because they're one in essence from all eternity. 
They had put this plan together back before the world was created. That's why they're one in mission and purpose. And that's what Jesus is talking about back in chapter 6. You flip back there for a second. Verse 37. He's saying basically the same thing, but listen to the language of relationship that he puts it in. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's eternal security. Totally based in Jesus Christ. Those who hear his voice, put their faith in him, and follow him, have that assurance. You see, the Jewish leaders, in their hostility, understood what he was claiming. They understood what he was saying, because they pick up stones to stone him. If they had just thought that he's saying, well, you know, I and the Father are one in the sense that I'm doing my Father's will. I mean, any prophet could say that, any teacher could say that. They understand he's alluding to something far greater and deeper. They get the message, not only is he the Messiah, he's the Son of God. That's what he's claiming, and that's why they picked up stones to stone him. And he says, what good work have I done? Which one of these miracles are you dismissing as evidence? And they say, Listen to the words. It's amazingly, I don't know, ironic is probably not the right word. I'm not a, I don't know technically the right English word for it. But they say, we're not stoning you because of any of your works. We're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. You know what I find amusing about that is they got it exactly backwards. Jesus, being eternally God, has made himself man to do the will of the Father to save the sheep. They got it exactly backwards. And it's interesting, Jesus throws a scripture in here. He goes back to Psalm 82. And I don't have a lot of time to dwell on this, but in Psalm 82, he actually, now I think people misunderstand what he's saying here because they say, well, is he trying to prove his divinity, that he is the son of God? That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is he's pointing out how they've got caught up in language. They've gotten caught up in labels. They want to arrest him and put him to death because he's hoping to catch him in using the word Messiah or God in an inappropriate way. And he's saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the presence of God and the kingdom of God in your midst because you're all caught up in these labels. He says, look back in Psalm 82, and if you read that psalm in context, it says, it's basically, it's God calling the judges of Israel in that day, in the psalmist day, calling them to account because they had been rendering unjust judgments. And so he's basically calling them before his throne and saying, you were appointed to represent my law, my justice, and you are acting in injustice. You are, you are abusing your authority, and I'm bringing down judgment upon you. That's what the psalm is saying. But in the midst of that, God calls these judges over Israel gods. That's the word that's used in Psalm 82. It's a very unusual use of the word, but it's used there. And so Jesus says, if That's appropriate for the word of God to call earthly judges who represent God's authority gods. Then how can you arrest me and put me to death, so to speak, because I call myself the son of God? Now, he's he's not trying to defend. Now, people say, well, is he trying to say he's not God? No, that's not what he's saying. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's already made it clear who he claims to be based on his words and his works. And he's saying, basically, from the lesser to the greater, if sinful 
fallen judges on earth can bear the label God, then how could it be wrong for me, the eternal son of God, to use the title for myself? The passage ends, chapter 10 ends on verses 37 and 38 with a final public offer. This is really the last statement Jesus makes publicly to the crowds at large. He says, basically, you should believe my words because they are backed up by my works so that you may know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What an act of grace that even among these hostile leaders, he calls upon them to put faith in him. And we know that there were two sheep among the wolves, at least two. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, he calls them to faith. And then it says he leaves Jerusalem, goes across the Jordan to where John the Baptist had done his ministry. Now, John the Baptist has been executed and off the scene for a while. But still, people who had been prepared by the ministry of John the Baptist, when he called them to repentance and to look for the Messiah, Jesus goes and starts teaching and doing miracles in their midst, and it says, here's their response. Everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. What a contrast from what he was getting in the leadership in Jerusalem. Jesus is still asking the question today, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the identity you need to worry about in life. We like to take personality tests, Myers-Briggs tests, you know, figure out if you're an ENFP or whatever you are. We like those personality tests. We like those silly little internet tests where you figure out what cartoon character you would be or what Star Wars character or Lord of the Rings character. We like those tests. I see a lot of them on Facebook and that sort of thing. Why do we like that so much? Because we're so consumed with our own identity. We're just obsessed, fascinated with our own identity. Well, your identity is not important at all until you figure out who Jesus' identity is. That's the identity you need to determine. Is he Messiah? Is he eternal? Is he the eternal son of God? That's who he claimed to be. And that's who his works proved him to be, especially his resurrection from the dead. His words, his works, and his promises prove that he was the eternal son of God, both God and man, who was sent to deliver us from sin and death and one day to deliver us into his eternal kingdom. His words, his works, and his promises. It's all the evidence you need. And we have the historical accounts of eyewitnesses appointed by him and empowered by the Spirit to give it to us accurately. That's all you need. Worry about his identity and then find your identity in him. His words, his works, and his promises leave us with three possibilities according to C.S. Lewis. You know them. Either he was a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the Lord of all. There is no other alternative. He is who he claimed to be. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for how the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes and changed our hearts that we might hear the voice of Christ through the word and come to him, that we might feed upon the bread of life, that we might drink from the water of life, that we might have the light of life for all eternity. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. It is him that we worship, and it, he is the one who invites us to his table now. We come joyfully and humbly, dependent upon your grace. In his name we pray. Amen.